Well, all year we're learning the way of Jesus, and today we're continuing a sermon series on the Ten Commandments. We're actually on the third of the ten this morning. And, and we've said that the way of Jesus includes a unique message or a story of what is wrong with the world, of who God is and what he has done in the world, in history, and even today in rescuing and redeeming a people for himself in Jesus Christ. And Christians call this message the gospel or the good news of Jesus. I just shared that our mission is sharing this message. And so if the gospel is true, then we are called not only to receive it by faith, to believe that it's true, but also to learn the way of Jesus in life. And the way of Jesus includes a a new set of morals or a new understanding of what is right and wrong according to God. Now ultimately, we've said that this new way of life can be summed up as learning to love the Lord our God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And, and that's really what the Ten Commandments are all about. The first uh, half are about loving God. The second half are about loving our neighbor as ourself. And now so far, we've had a couple key takeaways that have helped us better understand the Ten Commandments and how it fits within life. First, we saw that we must remember that ancient Israel was saved by the grace of God first, and then they were given the law. So obedience to the law wasn't the way of salvation. It wasn't the way to be saved. But rather, it's the way that God wants his people to function or to act after rescuing them by grace. Key principle to keep in mind. That's true for us in Christ as well. Second uh, takeaway is that we must remember that Christians do not pick and choose the commands or laws of the Old Testament in the Bible. Uh, we We don't follow the laws that we like or we don't follow the laws that we would prefer according to our biases. The, there are different, as I uh, taught last week, there are different categories of law in the Old Testament, civil, ceremonial, and moral laws. And while the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer un, in effect, as I explained last week, we are still obligated to obey the moral laws, including the Ten Commandments, because they reveal to us how God wants all people everywhere to live. The people that he made in his image, that is the moral law. So with all of that, if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to Exodus chapter 20. Uh, We're going to start again with verse 1, and we're going to read through the first um, three commands together. Then we'll unpack the third of the ten today. Exodus 20, verse, starting with verse 1. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is God's word. 
Well, as we've said, uh, the book of Exodus, written about 4,300 years ago by Moses, the, the great prophet and leader of the ancient people of Israel, describes a key turning point in history when God rescued the people of Israel from slavery, captivity in Egypt, and entered into them, uh, entered into a covenant relationship with them, which included giving them the law. That was part of the agreement. Now, eventually, God would bring them, the people of Israel, into the land of Canaan, the land he had promised uh, their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we said that the first command of the Ten established monotheism in history, frankly, that there is only one God, the creator of heaven and earth. Yahweh God is his name, the one who had spoken in the past uh, to the ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one, the same one who called Moses from within the burning bush and gave him his task to lead the people out of Egypt. Uh, he was not just one of many gods and goddesses or even the first among the gods. He was, he says, the only one. Now Israel was not to combine their worship of Yahweh God with anyone or anything else. And this exclusive relationship with God is the start of everything in the Bible. But it's also the foundation for us of learning what is right and wrong because if, it, if this is true and we believe that it is, this is the fundamental reality of our universe. There is only one God. Now, second, uh, the second command, building on the first, is there is only, if there is only one God, then he is the only one who would be worthy of our worship. But because he is the creator, holy and transcendent over his creation, he is altogether other in some ways than we are. His people were commanded not to make any images representing him for us to use in our worship of him. God's people were not to do this because it would degrade him or distort their understanding of him. The making of images or idols for use in worship was very common back then. And as I shared last week, the first and second commands were going to make the people of Israel <laughs> unbelievably weird in their time and place. Possibly following the way of Jesus may render some of us a little more unusual as well. Well, it may seem somewhat foreign to us, the concept of making an idol or bowing down and worshiping something in the form of a created thing. Uh, we saw last week that modern people, are, we are still very much tempted to worship and serve created things in the place of our creator God. And so these first two commands lead us, like, again, I say very naturally, to the third commandment as to how we not only think about God, but how we also represent him to other people. So let's go back to verse 7 and look at this again. Verse 7 says, You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Okay, so sometimes in a small verse, there's a lot to unpack, okay? That's the case for this morning. So even if you aren't super familiar with the Bible today, even if you haven't read the whole thing or you're just kind of here trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian, 
first of all, welcome. But even so, you still probably, and many people in our culture, would still recognize the older translation a little bit better. You shall not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. That would be how many of us learn this verse. Now, my first observation of this verse is this. It's that the name of God, that is Yahweh God, as we have said, the personal name of God revealed to his covenant people is used twice in one verse. Now, anytime there's repetition in the Bible, that is typically significant. And as we've said, whenever you see the word Lord in all caps in the Old Testament, that is translating the divine name. So replacing the name Yahweh with the title of Lord is meant to be respectful of this very command, not to misuse the name of God. Now, my second observation has to do with the, the word name, the concept of a name. Uh, in our culture today, we name our kids based on whatever we think is cool or whatever we like, right? Parents today are quick to make up a new name that th it just sounds cool. And there's, I don't think there's anything really wrong with that, but that there, there isn't usually some deeper story or significance about a name. The only uh, exception I could think of was uh, some of us have a, a, our first name or middle name uh, comes from a relative of ours that presumably was nice or good or something like that. Somebody liked at some point along the way. And so then we've inherited their name and there's a little bit of significance or story to that. But the most, um, but 4,300 years ago, totally different culture, names had a lot more significance. And they often, as we see throughout the Bible, they often reflected something about the character or the experiences of that person. In other words, a name wasn't just what you were called because it was cool. Your name represented who you are. Now, if that was the case for human beings, how much more should it be the case for the one true and living God? The name of God wasn't just what God was called, but reflected his divine character and all of his wonderful works and all of his divine nature. Everything about who God is and what God has done. So, I think it's no small wonder to, that it would be uh, a big deal to God as to how we would use his name. Now I guarantee it, if it would matter to you if someone misused your name, uh, even though our names don't have as much significance as they once did. If, if I overheard someone saying, oh, you're being such a David, I would, I would have questions <laughs> and other things to say probably. Uh, it would be disrespectful. Uh, to me to use my name like that. But still, what does it actually mean that to misuse the name of God or to use God's name in vain? Well, most people, I think, think that the third command is saying basically we, we shouldn't use God's name in any sort of swearing or vulgar language. And that's certainly part of it. It would be disrespectful to use God's name as some sort of curse. Uh, but there's so much more to this than simply keeping our language as Christians rated G. The reason is this. In this verse, there are two Hebrew words that are translated 
as misuse here. Now, one of the Hebrew words means literally to lift up, to carry, or to bear something. Now, the other Hebrew word is translated or means uh, vanity or that something is vain, empty, or worthless in some way. So combining these two words in these concepts means that misusing the name of Yahweh God literally means we should never lift up or bear the name of God in a vain, empty, or worthless way. Now this command runs, I think, in two different directions. It runs uh, one direction pointed inward and the other direction pointed outward. Now first, let's think about the internal direction of this command. This command forbids us from misusing the name of God in our own heart and mind. So we must be careful with our thoughts and emotions about God, that they are both true and appropriately respectful. So let's think about our thoughts first. Let's think about our thinking. It's one of the most confusing but helpful activities to do. So first, breaking this command might look like being careless or apathetic or simply just lazy in our commitment to learn more about God and more about his character and more about his nature and more about his person and more about his works. I was definitely reminded this past week as I attended the EFCA theology conference down in, at Trinity Seminary that it takes so much work to grow in our understanding of the truth of God's character and nature. Theology is the study of who God is and what he has done and as he has revealed to us by his word and his works. Now it's worth it, of course. Theology is worth doing, but it is hard work. But in our relationship with God, as in, I would say, any relationship that is good, there's a huge difference between trying or even struggling to understand God and not caring or being bothered to even try. It says a lot about the quality of of our relationship with someone as to how much time and energy that you'll spend in trying to understand them. Now, I was thinking on the way in this morning that Holly and I have known each other for a very long time. I think at least 30 years now. Okay, so you'd think we would understand each other pretty good. (laughs) You would think. But after 30 years, we still do things and say things and discover things that are surprising to us about each other. Now, I think it'll take us some more time and energy to really fully understand each other. And if that's true with a human relationship, how much more could it be true with our relationship with the infinite and holy God? Now, this is why we study the Bible. It's not just to check off a religious box. It's it's not even to study the Bible as an end. It's a means to the end of getting to know God rightly and truly who he is. This is also, as a church, why we continually point people back to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We must know and appreciate the 10,000 different facets of goodness that the gospel teaches us about God's character and his nature. 
This is also why, as a church, we are committed to gathering regularly and living our lives out under the authority of the word of God. I tell you all the time, if I say something that disagrees with God's word, I'm wrong. So because of this, because we want to know what is true about God, because we want to know God truly, we must be careful in how we think about him. Now second, uh, lest you think that I'm only intellectual, <laughs> uh, maybe mostly intellectual, but our heart and our emotions, our will is also included. Let's think about our feelings. Should I say, should we feel about our feelings? No, let's think about our feelings. In addition to the truth about our thoughts about God, this command also includes, certainly, our attitude towards him, how we feel about him, how we feel with him and toward him. If we fail to do this, to consider this, and to conform our emotions to the truth and reality of who he is, it's not just rude, it's insane. Let me give you an analogy. Imagine being shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean. Now, deep water, I love water, but deep water makes me feel a little funny, okay? That's developing into a full-blown phobia in my older age, okay? Gross. But imagine you're floating on a piece of something and you're shipwrecked out in the middle of the ocean. You're floating there and you know that you'll die unless you are somehow rescued and quick. But then, just before the end of you, along comes another boat, sailed by someone you find out later, somehow, who somehow knew that you were in trouble and were going to die, so they came at great personal cost to save you. And then, imagine how messed up it would be if after being saved, you sat in the boat, scrolling on your dumb phone, and because you just kind of wanted to focus on your life and your needs at that point. That wouldn't just be rude to the person who saved you, it would be insane. It would be utterly disrespectful, but that is how many of us feel toward God. like he owed us salvation. Well, here are a few diagnostic questions to help us discern about how we're doing with this. First, are you excited about God, or is he kind of like last on your priority list? Are you overly familiar with him? Do you, do you never have a sense of fear and trembling in his presence? Because one thing I observe from scriptures is that every single time, even an angel showed up, much less the, the Lord of hosts, people are constantly falling down in terror, thinking they're about to die. And what is the message universally? Do not be afraid. Do not fear. Are we overly familiar with him? Have you become so used to the idea of God that you've even inadvertently taken him for granted? Or has God shrunk down in your imagination, in your heart, to be so little and so non-threatening that he fits into your pocket like an accessory? Does God ever seem severe to you? Does he ever correct you? Do you never see that he is supreme and infinite in power and being? If so, you might have 
a sentimental little God of your own making instead of the one true and living God. Now this would be a gross misuse of the name of the Lord within your own heart and mind. So first, how we think about God and our attitude toward him matters a great deal. And we must be careful, thoughtful, and respectful of him even within our own hearts and minds, even before him in prayer, even as we sing in worship, even as we serve and give. But second, what about the other direction? Not just the inward direction, but the outward direction. Well, well, second, how does this third command of the 10 relate to how we treat other people? And it is here that the concept of bearing the name of God in a, in a proper way connects to a thread that runs through the whole Bible. From creation on down, God has always wanted people made in his image and likeness to both enjoy a relationship with him but also to properly represent him out into and to the world. So even here, before, just before uh, ancient Israel received the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God told his people in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 and 6, he said this, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Not just a kingdom with priests, okay? There's a distinction there. It's a kingdom of priests. The whole nation was to be a priesthood. They were to be a holy nation. That means to be set apart for the Lord's use. They were, in other words, to fulfill the role of the priesthood, not just for themselves, but out for all the nations on the earth. They were supposed to bear the name of God and accurately represent him to the world. They had received the revelation by, by the word of God and they had received the divine name, but it was never intended only to be about Israel. Israel's blessing was intended to be a light to all of the Gentiles. Of course, they never properly fulfilled this role as we, if we kept working through the Old Testament. Ancient Israel saw their status as the people of God as more of an us versus them distinction and not so much as a ministry to reveal to all peoples the glory of this one true God, Yahweh, the Lord Almighty. So as we read through the history in the Old Testament after giving the law, uh, we see generations of failure in Israel of properly bearing the name of God. That is, until the coming of Jesus. Until the coming of Jesus, it looked as if this redemption project of God and the promise of God to finally deal with the problems of sin and death was also going to fail. But then... In the person of Jesus, we see at last the fullness of the truth of who God is. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. In John 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father before his death on the cross, and he says, he says in prayer, I have made your name known to them, meaning his disciples, his people, and, and will continue to make you known in order that the love that you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. 
So in Jesus, we have received a true picture of the character and the nature of God, of God's goodness, of his holiness, of his justice and his love. In Jesus, we see the person and works of God, including creation and salvation, and receive the promise all the way into the new creation of the new heaven and earth. Because in Jesus, and by faith in Jesus, we can not only enjoy a relationship with God, but also experience the love of God poured out into our hearts, the very love that the Father has from eternity past for the Son and the Son for the Father. Jesus said that by by becoming his disciples, we might be one and experience that fellowship with him. But after the resurrection from the dead, Jesus also instructed his disciples in the making of more disciples that anyone who would want to be his disciple or follow his way would need to first be baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. When this happens, you become a Christian, bearing the name of Jesus. Christian means Christ person. The Apostle Peter wrote, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear that name. In other words, if you suffer as a Christian, Peter's like, forget the suffering, you're a Christian. You bear the name of God. Once you start to pull at the thread of bearing God's name, you start to see it everywhere from Genesis all the way through Revelation in the Bible. And so, Christians, today, even though we are under a new covenant which was established through the body and blood of Jesus and through his death and resurrection from the dead, we are once again called to bear the name of God in a way that is good and proper and true. And we've seen that this first relates to, uh, this relates first to, to govern our inner thoughts and attitudes toward God and about God, to our our willingness to learn the truth about who God is and respect him with a healthy, reverent awe in our attitude towards him. But second, this reality that in Christ we bear the name of God, this relates to how we interact with other people as well, to how we speak to people about God or how we represent God to other people as well. We are now Christ's ambassadors. We represent him. We carry his name into every conversation and every place and every culture and every time. If God had like a company branded shirt or team uniform, we'd need to wear those wherever we went. This is both the fulfillment of what God wanted for his people at Mount Sinai, to be a kingdom of priests ministering to a world that is lost without God, but also what God intended for people from creation on to the new creation. But also, this is what the Lord is doing among his people, even today, by faith in Jesus and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit. So in Jesus and by the Spirit, we too are being made holy. We are being sanctified. We are called to be the holy nation. So today, do you know that in Jesus, you bear the name of God? 
Do you understand that what a serious privilege, what an honor that is, but what a responsibility that is as well? Well, if so, then may we together as a church be a people who experience the great love and freedom and joy that we have in Christ. But may we be a people who are also careful and respectful of God. May we be truthful about him to a world that is lost without him. And the reason is this, because God is great and good and loving and holy and just, and there is nothing and no one in all of the world, even to the end of the cosmos, who is like him. There is only one God. He's worthy of our worship and he deserves our respect. Now next week we'll see that it is in him where we can finally and truly find our rest. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, please forgive us for misusing your name. Whether that's being careless or disrespectful or lazy in our desire to understand more of who you are, whether it's just being kind of entitled in our attitude towards you or whether it's in our fear or our misrepresentation of you to others. Father, would you help us? We trust that you'll forgive us in, in Jesus because of his work and his atoning sacrifice for our sins. But we ask, Lord, that you would help us by, by the truth of your word and the power of your spirit to grow in our understanding of how we can relate to you, how we can know you, and how we can represent you in the world in a way that reflects the totality of who you are. Lord, what a high calling. What a serious privilege. What an unbelievable God you are. We thank you and we praise you because you are glorious and you are good. And for whatever reason, Father, you want a relationship with us. And you want us to have a relationship with you and know who you are as well. Father, I pray that we would be, as Christians, grounded in this truth and that we would grow in our understanding of and our practice of our faithfulness to follow your way and represent faithfully and truthfully and joyfully your name, not only in our own hearts and minds, but out into a world that is desperate in need of you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.